Thessalonians chapter 1 this evening. By the way, I got a phone call from Greg Jacobs. Jerry, get this. Pretty neat. So they're in Michigan. We are getting picked up on what's called uh, repeater stations. They're in Michigan. And Della and Uncle Murph in a tree stand. And guess who comes on the radio? The Independent Baptist Church of Anchorage. Is on, they listen to us out by a tree stand, Greg said, on the radio. So we're not just at 13 million anymore. It's even more with repeater stations that are beginning to pick it up now. So that's pretty exciting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He was pretty excited about that. He had called and left me a voicemail about it. It was pretty neat. Anyhow, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting there, just the first four verses. And as you'll see, once we get into verse, really, first two verses I did sort of cover at the introduction. That, that's more of that, but verse 3 and 4. Verse 1 says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always, uh, um, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I do love you, Lord. I ask your blessing upon the message tonight. Please control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that this would be a help and that it would, it would draw us closer to you, that you would use it to meet the needs that are here. Lord, help me to stay true to your word and what's here. And Father, again, may you be glorified and honored, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So this evening, again, we're going to be diving into this book now. Last week, during the introduction, or really given a, a survey of this book, we looked, at, of course, written by the Apostle Paul. This is his very first epistle that he wrote. We looked in that second missionary journey as he, as he find, we have our very first church plant in Europe with the church at Philippi, and then we get into the church here, the Thessalonians, and how we saw it was born in adversity. Paul, after, we don't know exactly the amount of time he was there, but it does record for us he was only able to preach for three Sundays in the synagogues there, and of course, that ended up leading to, at a later point in time, an uprising that takes place by the, by the, the Jews who were, you know, um, wanting to suppress this movement of Christianity, wanting to suppress Paul's work. And so, anyhow, Paul gets driven out of the town. And we know he eventually ends up, after he, goes, after he spends time in Athens, he goes to Berea, then he goes down to Athens, then he comes over to Corinth, and from Corinth, he writes this letter back to the Thessalonians. And it's, it's both these epistles, we're going to do First and Second Thessalonians. The primary theme that's here is the reality of the return of Jesus Christ and how that affects us, to be ready for it. And he gets into different practical things of our life and being ready for that return of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to dive into that this week. Again, this, remember, this is one of the rare churches in all of Paul's epistles this is the one you don't see him correcting problems. The only other church close to this is the church at Philippi. He has to deal with a divisive issue um, between some, uh, uh, some ladies in the church that were having some issues. And again, I always, always laugh at that when I read it, because could, could you just imagine that epistle is read in the church and he names names? Because he names names in that epistle. But all the other ones, he was dealing with serious problems. 
The churches in Galatia, that's coming into his first missionary journey. These churches left the gospel. Just like that, gone. He said, who who hath bewitched you? I mean, they actually left the gospel. If that could happen in just a number of years, think about nowadays, 2,000 years later, just because a church says it's a church, don't believe it. Don't believe it. Those churches were started by Paul. They left the gospel. The Judaizers came in, they believed it, and they attached something to Christ, which is always, that's the devil's masterpiece for deceiving people within Christianity. Yes, believe in Jesus Christ. He died for you, was buried, and rose again. But guess what? It's not quite enough. You can't have your faith just in that. Well, you also have to, and fill in the blank, that is changing the gospel. Salvation is in Christ alone, and that is it. Or the church at Corinth and all the problems and headaches that went on at Corinth. I mean, pride and, and the immorality and, and the divisiveness. and I mean, the, the church services were literally becoming chaotic. It was flesh-driven. And him having to work to straighten that up. This is a church over and over he's rejoicing in. He's thrilled with what's taking place there. So what we want to do is we, we want to see from even, even given our text, what made this a great church? So let me, t- let me get into this. When I was in New Guinea, New Guinea is made up of about 22 different provinces altogether. About 22, I can't remember exactly. And there was also really classifications broken into of the whole nation into three different classifications. You had the highlanders, you had coastal, and you had islanders. And we, of course, were, we'd be considered islanders because we were on one of their islands, the island of New Ireland. Now, what's interesting is you could determine who was from what region without knowing where they were from originally, just by their characteristics. You can tell who was who. If they were from the highlands, of course, they had even a little bit different physical features from there that would give it away, but that's not what I'm driving at, that side of the house. The highlanders, though, in characteristics that was very common is they were very emotional, and they worked very hard. Very emotional. If, if they were angry, you knew they were angry. There was no question. They were screaming in your face. All right? If they loved you, they loved you. All right? They, they, were, they, were, they were passionate about it. And I think somebody's calling, God just called Joshua, I think. So if there's a Joshua, I think God's trying to call you right now. Um, <laughs> and, and, so, and, that's what, and they, they were hard workers. I had a few island, highlanders on our island, and they were easily my hardest workers in the church. We're the highlanders. When we had, when, when we had work to do, I would hope the highlander would show up. All right? Because he was going to work hard. And that was a common characteristic known throughout. The islanders, on, on the other hand, they were known for being very laid back. You wouldn't see the passion from them at all. Matter of fact, they were known for just telling you what you wanted to hear. Whether it was true or not, that, well, this is what you want to hear, so they would just tell you. That was it. They're also known for being incredibly kind, which they were, just, just so kind all the time. And so you can, you can tell who they were, what region they were from, based on their characteristics. So what Paul's driving at now, what we're going to look at today, is he gives out a trilogy, if you will, of characteristics of what made this church great, of traits that was in their life. So these are the same three traits. Boy, if we could pattern ourselves. And really, this I, I've told when, when we had the missionary here uh, Sunday night. And, 
and we are talking before the service, and I do this with anybody that, that I get that, that chance to. So, you know, he was he, he did not really call for the meeting, as I mentioned. Brother Seavers up in Glen Allen had called and said, hey, would you have him in? He's flying out that day. And, and I told Jason, sure, yeah, I'll, I'll have him in. That, that's not a problem. And so we were talking before the service, because I, I, especially those who are, have been in the ministry for many years, I love to sit down and talk with them. Um, and I was also, uh, it was also captivating to me how his life paralleled much of Pastor Roach, former Marine, Tennessee Temple, on into the mission field. And, uh, and so, as we were talking, um, he, he didn't know, really know anything of our church at all, and I was telling him, listen, I said, really, we have a great church here. There are some really, really good people that are here. You know, I can think of pastors that have just enormous headaches. I just want to say this. I am very thankful for this church. Um, there, there's just some, just some traits, uh, grounding uh, things that are in place here. And I certainly appreciate you all very much. <clears throat> and so, Paul gives here some characteristics of what made these people, these Christians, and this church strong. And we're going to see it's going to be, a, 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 it's going to center around three things that Paul focuses a, a lot in his epistles. That's going to be faith, hope, and love. All right? So I got this down to three things we're going to look at. We'll see what we get to tonight. This might end up being two-part messages. I'm not sure. When I was putting it together, I thought this might be a two-parter. Uh, we'll, see. we'll see how the first point goes. So, anyhow, we need a faith. Number one, we're going to see a faith that produces. It was a characteristic of this church. A faith that produces. Number two, a love that provokes. And number three, a hope that is patient. A hope that is patient. So as he introduces this book, he dives into, he dives into this. Look at verse three. He said, verse two, I, I, he's always praying for them. And he says, this is what comes to his mind. Remembering without ceasing, the first thing mentioned is your work of faith. In other words, a faith that produces, a faith that's doing something, a faith that works. When Paul was praying for this church and thinking about them, the first thing he thought on was the faith that they had. It produced works. He rejoiced in it. These weren't those just, quote, getting saved and sitting on the sideline. They were doing something, and he knew it. They had a faith that produced. They had a strong faith. And it's true, a good, strong, true Christian will have a faith that produces. A faith that works. And their faith was the reason why they were working. Because of the conversion they had in Christ. Listen, Paul, Paul in his right. Let me, let me make something clear before I dive into this. The New Testament, especially, of course, the writings of Paul, is always clear that works has zero effectual part in your salvation. None. It, 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 has, it has no effectual part of your salvation. We think of verses like Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. We can think of verses, look over in Romans chapter 4. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. I want to cover this first so we're clear, because we're also going to say we need a faith that works. Romans chapter 4. Verse number 4. Well, I'll, I'll, 
Yeah, four is fine. I'll start in four. I could just start in verse one, but verse four is fine. Now, to him that worketh is reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. So we see a difference here. Paul is establishing between grace and, and, and work. How if something is of works, it's not of grace. It's not. It separates it. And notice what it says in verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Again, because what saves us, the effectual part of salvation, is grace and faith. You can look why we're in, it's the same part of the Bible. You can look over in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, why we're here. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible is very clear. When it comes to the effectual part of salvation, works has no part. We are saved by grace through faith. Now, having said that, let's get to the truth of what Paul was saying. In verse 4, he talked about, uh, uh, he used the word elect. Uh, um, you can listen to the series that, goes, that covers Calvinism against the doctrine of election as we, as we cover the, the tulip and unconditional election. It's, it's, he's not dealing with anything of the tulip. That was created by John Calvin based on Augustine's writing. Um, but it, he is saying that he, he's recognizing, you guys are real. You're true. This, this is of God. <clears throat> and as such he recognized that they had this genuine faith that did work, which did be true of Christians. Look what Paul also said. All right, Look over to the book of Titus. Look in Titus. We know it has no effectual part, but you need to understand something. Let's look at what, what the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess that they know God. They have a profession of faith. But in works, they deny Him. Being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. That's not the church of Thessalonians. No. no. And he's even getting into, obviously, false converts like we dealt with on Sunday morning. Look, look over in chapter 3. Where is it here in chapter 3? Verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain what? Good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. You can even think of Ephesians 2.10, for where his workmanship created unto good works. You know, you can think, look, look, let's go over to James. Matter of fact, I'd recommend, I have a message on this in James. I'd recommend you go back and listen to it if you haven't. James chapter 2, look at verse 14. James chapter 2 and verse 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith, and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warned and filled, notwithstanding you give not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? 
this really gets into it here. This, this is some good stuff here. He is dealing with a dead faith. A dead faith has this profitless profession. It's mere words. It's all it is. Many say they have faith. James, you know, we get into verse 14, you can see he has, he has two questions listed right there. What profit is there in saying you have faith and can faith save him? The answer to both is obviously in the negative. The fact is, is like we see in the church at Thessalonica, the first thing that Paul mentions why he was rejoicing, what he remembered about them, is they had a faith that worked. And that's true. Real faith produces works. That's what it does. It does. Real faith produces works. It's not effectual in salvation. It's the result of salvation. <clears throat> Again, if your faith does not produce works, then you have, as he would say, O vain man. You have an empty profession. That's it. You have an empty profession. This is, if you have evidence of salvation, a result of salvation. Genuine faith works. Again, you're not saved by faith and works, but you are saved by a faith that works. You can think of even the parables that Christ got into dealing with the same subject. The one that always comes to mind is the first one given to us in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. The difference between the wise and the foolish in the parable was those who had oil in their lamps. I believe that's a symbolic gesture. On the outside, everybody looked the same. But only, only five, only half of them actually possessed oil. You can have a profession of the faith. It's not the profession that simply gets you there. It's the possession of God's Holy Spirit that has to indwell you and seal you into the day of redemption. <clears throat> Again, it's not what you say that demonstrates faith. Keep, keep this in mind. It's what you do. You can't see with your eyes regeneration. You can't see faith in, in that sense with your eyes. You can't see conversion with your eyes. What allows us to see faith of others is their works. That's what it is. Just like Christ said, you shall know them by their yeah, fruit, works, by their fruit. What are they producing? <clears throat> Again, it's not simply what you say that demonstrates your faith, it's what you do. There are many who have made a profession of faith and their life just has never changed. There are those who said, you know what? You know, maybe I, I know I've ran into that so many times over the years where you're witnessing to somebody or talking to somebody and you, you had no clue. And I'm saying somebody you know, have a, a working relationship with, maybe at work or something like that, or a family member. And you know, they've never shown any evidence of salvation. Never have. And then you're witnessing to them and they say, oh yes, no, 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 uh, yes, I, 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 I do have a profession of faith. And then know what we do many times? Remember, I, 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 looking back, I get angry that I was taught that originally. We're taught, oh, okay, you're good. I'm glad. That's great. There's no evidence. Do you understand the Bible over and over stresses there are multitudes who have an empty profession of faith? An empty one. Now, don't worry. it's possible that that person has had maybe zero opportunity for growth for whatever reason took place. Is that possible? It is. And they were genuinely converted. I believe that. But if that person had 
the, 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 the potential, the opportunity, and he simply chose not to and has no desire for it, that's an empty profession of faith. And it's vain. A dead faith, as we just read, doesn't save. The Bible says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. As newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the word, there should be a desire there for God. If not, something's wrong. It's not just saying a prayer that saves you. God's not going to look and say, you know what? Oh, yes, yes, on this day, you said, you said, you said the right words. No, no. No, that's not what he's going to do. He's going to look to see if, if you heard that gospel, you repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, if that took place that day, oh, he saved you right then and there. Just like that day that I did call upon the Lord on June 30, 1982. But it wasn't the words that I said. It was placing my faith in Christ. That's what produces salvation. We have so often put the emphasis on saying a prayer. Don't get, I'm not against it. I'm not of this crowd that's come out of nowhere saying, if you said, and they exist in Baptist churches. I've been in them. Where they actually teach and preach that if you said a prayer, you just work and you're not saved. That's nonsense. But we had placed such an emphasis at times on, on, on prayers where, where I, I know of key places and incredibly popular churches where they went into Sunday school classes with children and simply did this. I asked the question, when you die, who here would like to go to heaven? Who's going to say, no, nah, I mean, I, I think I'll go to hell. Who's going to say that? Nobody. All the children want to go. And then they say, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, this is in, this is in, this happens on uh, way too often. And then, okay, those of you who want to go to heaven, pray after me. That's not the gospel. Do you understand that? That's not it. Even those people might be sincere as anything, believing if they just get him to say these words. And I believe that's the case because I, I was there. I was there at 19, 20, 21 years old, but I believe if I just get him to say this prayer, they're saved. I believed it. It wasn't until three years into this thing where I'm seeing professions every week that all of a sudden I got convicted because nobody's in church. Why did that bother me? Nobody had evidence of salvation. Something was horribly wrong. Because when I got saved, nobody had to beg me to go to church. Did you know that? I'm not kidding. When I got saved, I wanted to be there. Nobody had to go to my door over and over and over. I'm like, oh, you're here again? Oh, you're here again? No, something's wrong with that. That's called an empty profession of faith. That's all that is. <clears throat> A saving faith is more than a, just a profession. It produces a change. It works. Again, you're not saved by faith and works, but you are saved by faith that works. <clears throat> and we can see here in James, I'm not going to dive into it too much here. You can go back and listen to the message. But I dive into that in the message, how what James is teaching here, what, what dead faith substitutes as, it substitutes simply words instead of works. Be filled, my brother. Be, be clothed. It has no trouble with the empty words. It substitutes those instead of actual works. 
Your faith is demonstrated by your works. That was what happened at the church in, in, in uh, Thessalonica. Their, their faith was clear by their works. And Paul's saying, man, when I think of you, I see what you all are doing. Your faith is clear. Listen, when you head out to work, whether you're a police officer, in the military, a teacher, how you live, those decisions you make, those works that come out, that's what should demonstrate who you are. Not just, I mean, tell people you're a Christian. I'm good with that. Uh, but I'm saying, what's really going to demonstrate it is your actions. It's what you do. A genuine faith or an alive faith has works. It has a, a hunger for righteousness, a desire for the word, a desire for holiness, a desire for purity. I mean, think about it. A genuine faith at the moment of conversion. I mean, just, just think of the reality of what takes place. Regeneration. Life. Life. Think of that. God's Holy Spirit literally indwells and seals. Know what that's going to bring? A change. A change. All of a sudden, God's Spirit's there. That person goes to do something. That doesn't seem right. You've heard my testimony that going back and cussing after I got saved and all of a sudden just thinking, I had no idea what that was. It was you know, conviction, of course, but I didn't know. I, just remember, I remember two hours later thinking, I shouldn't do that. And know what else I couldn't wait for? Church. I wanted to be there. Now, let me cover this now. I'll probably close with this here this evening. Some say there's contradictions between Paul and James. I want to be, and I, and I, do, want to, I do want to touch on that. I want to spend a, just a couple of minutes on this right here. Where, where there are those, you can, you, can, you can find them in many commentaries that like to try and discredit the Bible. They try and say you have a contradiction here between what James says and what Paul says. And there is no contradiction between the two at all. They are in complete Agreement. Remember the verses that we read in Titus 1.16 and Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. That's exactly what James is saying. Remember, the two men are fighting two completely different problems. Paul is, is, is in a fight at, at what, it's something what produces salvation. James is dealing with something after salvation. James is... Paul's dealing with what I would term as the root of salvation. James is dealing with the fruit of salvation. Paul was dealing with Judaizers coming in and changing the gospel, adding works to it. Paul's saying, no, it's not. We are saved simply by faith. James is dealing with those who have a profession of faith, but they don't want to do anything. An empty profession. Two different battles are being fought here, and both those battles need fault. You have those, again, trying to add to salvation. Paul's fighting that, saying, no, we are justified by faith alone. It's only by faith. James is dealing with the demonstration. Paul before God, James before men, who see our faith by our actions. James' point is, if you have a faith, it works. It's the same thing that Paul's saying. We are his workmanship created unto... Good works. Good works. <clears throat> so this church in Thessalonica, it's, when he thinks of them, he realizes they're working. I appreciate that about our church. I mean, we think of the different ministries here that are taking place. 
You know, I, I remember the first time I had Kerry Nansen to preach, one of my good friends, the pastor at Southside Baptist in Tampa. He was up here for, uh, I think it was our, our revival service the first time. And the two and four, I think it was on, I'm trying to think what the event was. Yeah, it was, it was two things. The two and four, and then we have that, the lunch after the service. And so he came to me after that. First off, it was during two and four, we came in here for, for that ministry. And he saw all the people here on a Friday night. And, and he has a really good church. And he's like, I just can't believe how many people are here. And, 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 and he said, and you have like a, just a, you know, you're not even direct leading this. I said, no, I'm not. That, that, that's his ministry. I, I, I don't need to. He goes, I, I don't know that I would get that at my church. And then Sunday after, afternoon, after we, had, after we had the meal. And you know what happens at our church. Once that meal's done, whew, that place is cleaned up in like 10 minutes. It's amazing. He's looking, and I've been there with him. I've been there with him hours after an event like that, cleaning up the entire fellowship room area of a church of a couple of hundred. Staying there for hours trying to get it done. And I, different ministries that get involved in here, listen, I really do appreciate all that takes place here. Know what it's evidence of? Conversion. Conversion. Or it's not pulling teeth because there should be a desire for those things. Listen, and I'm telling you, if you have no genuine desire for the things of God, something's horribly wrong. You need to make sure you do not have an empty profession of faith. Because what we're going to go get into next week, he goes from there, he goes to this love that has passion. In other words, he gets to the motivation behind the works next. This love that works. It's incredible. And then, well, then we'll get into how they endure, what allows them to persevere. And that being their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Both heads bowed and eyes closed. Now this message certainly was for those, for Christians. And I know we have a few visitors here. Whether you're a visitor or not. I want you to think about this question. If you were to die right now, where would you go? Have you truly been converted? Because one day you will stand before Almighty God and He will judge you. He will judge you based on His law. And I assure you, you are guilty, just like I am. You have broken God's law. And we know from Scripture that 100% of those who are found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. So we know, as the Bible says, upon one side, but after this, the judgment, you're going to be judged. It's going to be based upon God's law, and you've broken it. All those who are found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. You see, something has to happen where you look perfect. Did you know that? Something has to happen where you look... That's God's requirement. Perfection. But none of us are. So you know what he did? God himself became a man 2,000 years ago. He became a man, lived on this earth for those 2,000 years, lived the perfect life without sin, the only one who's ever done it or ever will do it. He did. He lived that perfect life for you. Then he went to the cross. He took all your sin upon himself. The Father judged him in your place. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 
He takes your sin, that verse teaches us. At the same time, He can give you His righteousness, which is perfect. Boy, if you'll come to Him in repentance and faith, He will save you. Is there anybody here say, Pastor McGovern, that's me. I'm not sure that I've truly been converted. Please, pray for me. Just slide your hand up for me real quick and then put it back down. Just slide your hand put it back down. I see a couple of small children. That's all I'm seeing. If you put your hand up, I did miss it. All right. Christian, if the Lord worked on your heart tonight, why don't you come and pray? Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Let's turn to page 490. And if you need to come and pray, you come and pray.